This episode of Crosscut Talks is supported by Alaska Airlines. Hey, welcome to Crosscut Talks. I'm Mark Baumgarten, the managing editor at Crosscut. And this week we're talking about the coronavirus pandemic and specifically about how it's changing us. It's been a little over a year now since normal life for all of us came to a screeching halt after the spread of the virus was declared a pandemic. Back then, as schools and businesses shut their doors and we all made adjustments to our daily lives, there was a lot of uncertainty. The big question was when we would get back to normal, but the answer, it kept shifting. Would we be back in two weeks, six weeks, by the summer? In time for the new school year? The enormity of the crisis dawned on many of us very slowly. Now, in the spring of 2021, we're still in the middle of this pandemic, but we are also in a very different position. The peak of the devastating third wave of infections is in the rearview mirror, and vaccines are being widely distributed, with a quarter of the population in the states now fully vaccinated. But uncertainty remains. Variants of the virus, along with reopening plans, are driving surges in some parts of the country and inspiring talk of renewed restrictions. And then there's this. Who exactly will we be when we eventually emerge from this period of sustained weirdness? How has the pandemic changed our lives as individuals and as a society? And how has it changed our brains? These are the kind of questions that Dr. Nicholas Christakis has been trying to answer throughout the pandemic, most notably in his book, Apollo's Arrow, The Profound and Enduring Impact of Coronavirus on the Way We Live. Nicholas is a professor at Yale, where he is immersed in the fields of network science, biosocial science, and behavior genetics. He's also the director of the Human Nature Lab and is the co-director of the Yale Institute for Network Science. And earlier this month, he was a guest on CrossCut's at-large event series, where I was able to ask him what the future holds for this virus and the society it has reshaped. As always, you can email us at talks at crosscut.com. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Okay, on with the show. All right, I want to start with this question. Um, There are two types of behavior that we're interested in right now, um, that of the virus and that of human beings responding to the virus. Tell me which is more predictable. Oh, that's such a good uh, first question. Um, I would say the virus is more predictable. Well, both are predictable. You know, we are doing certain things that humans typically do during times of plague, but I would say the virus is a bit more predictable. All right. Well, so let's um, let's let's start on the virus then uh, for a little bit. You know, in your book, Apollo's Arrow, which we should note came out last fall, uh, you entertain the idea that the virus may become less virulent um, as a possibility. Right. Uh, but it looks like with the variants that are taking hold that the opposite has come to pass. And yet we also have vaccines right now. And, I guess I'm just curious where your thinking is at right now about um, what the path of the virus is and how long will we be in its grip? Okay, so usually from a 
sort of a one there's an, an idea which is contested but which i think is probably true that in general terms from a darwinian point of view the virus doesn't want to kill us the virus is better off if it makes us a little bit sick so we go out and about and we and we continue to spread it if the virus makes us rapidly sick or too sick and we take to our bed or fells us or kills us then that variant of the virus that is more deadly will become extinct uh, on average, whereas the more benign versions of the virus that you know make us mildly sick um, will circulate and come to predominate. And, th and then over long periods of time, the, there's a kind of arms race between hosts and pathogens, and they reach a kind of detente where the virus you know, tends not to be as deadly or the pathogen tends not to be as deadly. So that's the typical pattern. Uh, but that's not always the case. For example, the 1918 influenza pandemic, the second wave was four times as deadly as the first wave. And there's a lot of theories about this, some of which are relevant as we discussed in more directly the answer to your question, which is that during the 1918 pandemic, human behavior modified the natural process of the virus. So specifically what happened then is there were a lot of, a lot of outbreaks on the front during the First World War and then on the front, what would happen is if you got very sick, you were put into a crowded railway car and transported to a crowded camp to convalesce. So our human behavior moved more deadly strains of the virus at greater distance and put more deadly strains of the virus into greater contact with other people. So it, we did the opposite of what usually the virus does. And as a result of that, the deadlier strains moved further and came into contact with more people. And as a result of that, the deadlier, the second wave of the pandemic was worse than the first wave in 1918. That's a theory that I just described. So the same kind of thing might be happening right now, ironically. While what I described is generally true, over the long term, the viruses tend to get more benign. Over the short term, they can do anything they want. And what we are seeing right now is the emergence of new deadlier strains of the virus. The B117 strain was just reported last week although preliminary results have been available for a few months, is probably 30% deadlier. And the virus and the strains are getting more infectious, meaning that they spread more easily. Uh, and, and the thing we most are worried about is that the viruses will come to, the, the strains will emerge, the virus will evolve to uh, evade vaccines, that we will have new strains that evade vaccines. So, so yes, in general, things get, viruses tend to become better. And I think ultimately what will happen with this particular pathogen is it'll join the other coronaviruses that just give us the common cold. There are four other coronaviruses that circulate among us that just give us the sniffles. And I think over a 50-year horizon or maybe over a 10-year horizon, this one will become like that and will just give us the sniffles. And uh, that'll be the denouement, the final denouement of this uh, 2019 uh, coronavirus pandemic. <laughs> All right, so ten years—that's uh, that's still a little ways away. So we gotta get through a few a few more years of this, and and vaccines are gonna help. Um, well, no, I don't mean it's gonna last ten years. What I mean is, um, I don't mean that the the coronavirus is gonna, uh, you know, we're gonna be continue to 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 to, uh, to have an epidemic for ten years. What I mean is that ultimately this virus will join the other coronaviruses that circulate among us, and the disease will become what is known as endemic. You know, it, it, one of the things that it's important to realize is that is that we happen to be alive at a moment which is rare in our species, which is the emergence of a new pathogen into our midst. 
And, uh, and this pathogen is now going to circulate among us forever. Uh, and um, it, from the point of view of the pathogen, it is having what is known as an ecological release. It's like an invasive species to us. You know, like if we took rats to an isolated island in the Pacific, the rats would overrun the place. Our bodies are that island to the rats, to the virus, which is just, you know, circulating among us in this, in this way. So, um, so, you know, ultimately the virus is it's never going to disappear. It's, we're not going to eradicate it. It's just going to circulate among us. But its epidemic force and its lethality will be attenuated over time and would have anyway, but will be especially so because of the vaccines. All right, so let's talk about vaccines now uh, for a little bit. Um, you know, there is uh, quite a bit of vaccine hesitancy um, still, and a lot of that is built on a kind of social contagion of misinformation, right? And this is something that you've studied. Um, why are we so susceptible to this contagion right now? Why, why, why is the evidence of the vaccines working not working on everybody who um, is suspicious of them? I mean, I would say there, there are two ideas that are relevant to the question you just asked. One idea is the fact that during times of plague for thousands of years, lies and superstition and denial also come to predominate. I mean, you might even say that a key feature of serious epidemics is mendacity. And for thousands of years during times of plague, people have first sought to deny it. And here we did again in, in 2019 as the pathogen was bearing down on us, we, many, many, uh, you know, the president of the United States, many governors, many people on the street sought to deny what was happening, didn't want to believe that we were about to be stricken. And also all kinds of misinformation circulated. This too, lies, you know, have been a feature of, of, of epidemics for thousands of years. And as I said, you might think of lies and denial as a key part of what it means to be an epidemic. You know, the plague is one of the four horsemen of the apocalypse, you could think of mendacity as its squire, you know, following right behind it. So if you map human social networks as my lab does, you can trace out the flow of the germ across the social connections, across the network. And, and in parallel to that, as you're talking about, Mark, there's a spread of misinformation and people are influenced. Your risk of getting infected depends on whether your friends are infected. And your risk of getting misinformation or correct information actually depends on whether your friends have misinformation or correct information. So I guess the first part of my answer to your question would relate to the fact that lies are almost an intrinsic feature of epidemics. And the second part would relate to a broader set of ideas related to, as you said, social contagion. One of the deep ironies of human beings is that when we, we evolve to be very sensitive to what others around us are doing, and in fact, if you let human beings do whatever they want, they typically choose to do what others are doing, which is one of the ironies of, you know, of our species. So we are very sensitive to what other people are doing in, in all aspects of our life. And this also, alas, applies to things like vaccine hesitancy. So when your friends are wearing masks, it increases your probability of wearing ma a mask. If your friends believe that the vaccines you know, some some crazy theory that microchips are being implanted in you through the vaccines, well, then you come to believe that. Or if your friends believe that uh, hydroxychloroquine, you know, is, uh, is an effective treatment for the disease, well, that affects you too. And this, incidentally, is one of the mechanisms we need to employ to counteract misinformation, and which is one of the reasons when you get vaccinated, 
one of the best things you can do is advertise that to your friends, not only on social media, but in your personal interactions, because those among us who have not yet been vaccinated, as they come to be surrounded by more and more people who are vaccinated, they're more and more likely to see, hey, you know, pretty much everyone I know is being vaccinated. I should probably get so too. That is a very, that is the most powerful way, in my view, to undo vaccine hesitancy. And there are other techniques. I'll mention one and then we can go on. One is you have to meet people who have vaccine hesitancy where they are at. It doesn't help to lecture them. You need to ask them, well, why? Why? What are your concerns? Tell me about your concerns. And, uh, and say, so, you know, I, I understand those concerns. Like I can see, oh, you're worried that it's a new vaccine. You're right. It is new. It's a, it's a technology we haven't used before. Or uh, you're worried you'll regret it if you have a complication, whereas somehow you think it's more natural to get the infection. If you, if you, if you have a complication of the natural infection or die from the infection, you think that's better than, you know, if you have an even rarer complication from the vaccine. I can understand why you would think that an action you take that leads to a calamity has different moral freighting than, uh, than, a, than a natural thing that occurs to you. Anyway, people might have all kinds of reasons and it helps to try to, to validate what their concerns are or to correct. If they say, well, you know, I think the, the, you know, the vaccine has, uh, you know, chemicals from outer space or something. No, I'm, you know, thank you for telling me that, but you know, that's that's not the case, uh, you know. So, so I think anyway, that's a narrow. So that's a two-part response to the question of vaccine hesitancy. It it relates to your social interactions, it responds to your social interactions, and it also responds to a certain set of tools uh, that uh, we can deploy to meet people where they're at when they're worried about using the vaccine. So how do you how do you feel the um... U.S. government, in particular, has done in 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 fighting this, um, or or just in in messaging in general around the uh, um, around the pandemic and then the vaccines. I mean, uh, where have they gone wrong, and where could what do you hope uh, we see in the future? I think that um, I guess as a preamble to an answer to that question, I would like to put another idea on the table, which is that. This way we've all come to live right now, it feels very unnatural and, and alien and, and strange, doesn't it? But yeah. It's, yeah, but it's really important to understand that plagues are not new to our species. They're just new to us. You know, we think it's crazy that we've had to come to live this way, but our ancestors have been confronting plagues for thousands of years. I mean, they're in the Bible. They're in, uh, in the Iliad. They're in Shakespeare, in Cervantes. Plagues are a part of the human condition. And I think that an ideal strategy, and from the moment this virus was loose in our species and we had community spread in the United States. So community spread is, in, in, imported cases are when you have a case and you know where it came from. The person says, oh, I just came from Wuhan or I just came from Italy. And so that's a new case that arrived from somewhere else. Community spread is where you find a person with the disease and they have no idea where they got it. That means the virus is loose. From the moment the virus was loose in our society and we had community spread, we were clearly going to lose a lot of lives, 100,000, 200,000 lives, but not a half a million to a million. We're probably in the end. It, when I wrote the book back in August, I thought we would lose between half a million and a million lives. We've already exceeded the lower bound of that. I don't think we'll get to a million before the plague is over. But I think we will pass the midpoint. I think we will ultimately lose more than 750,000 American lives. This is an enormous calamity. I don't think people fully realize this yet. And so from the moment the plague was on our shores, 
the wisest strategy, I think, would have been to uh, call the American people to action and, and implement a variety of things, which we did not do. And I can describe for you some of those ideas, but that have had we done it, we wouldn't have lost as many lives. We, you know, we might have lost 100,000 or 200,000 lives, but not 500 or 700,000 lives. And, and I think our leaders have, have failed us, uh, primarily the previous president, and, but many governors that I don't, it's not just a right-wing, left-wing kind of thing. I think the previous president was very limited in, in many ways and made decisions which I think ultimately resulted in the, in the needless death of many Americans. But many governors uh, on the left and on the right also made mistakes. And some people say, well, other countries also screwed up. And that's true. But I, without being jingoistic, I have higher hopes for the United States. We're the United States of America. We're the richest nation on earth. We have the most fantastic scientists and doctors. We have an incredible apparatus for free and open communication. We have the CDC. And, um, and we've, we've loved it. I mean, I am ashamed. I am ashamed as a nation um, for how badly we have done. And I hope we, you know, get our act together and do better going forward. That was a meandering answer. But, you know, it's these questions of yours are not, you know, they're, they're complicated. <laughs> you know, they're just not... I apologize. No, no, no. I... <laughs> I will try. I'll try to ask some simpler questions. No, no, no. Uh -huh. don't. I'm, I, I'm enjoying the conversation. I'm just saying, you know, I feel like I'm very long winded. You know, you give these good, crisp, intelligent questions and I'm kind of giving this you know, long winded answer. But, you know, these aren't easy things to, to talk about. Oh, absolutely. And yeah. Nicholas, you're doing great. Uh, yeah, I've got no. some I've got some some curveballs here for you, though. I, no, no. I hope you can hang with us. Um, so so we you I think that you touched on herd immunity a little bit earlier. I think that that is kind of the the watchword, right? That is what everybody is um, as we watch those percentages tick up um, of the vaccinated in our country. Um, we have an eye on uh, herd immunity. But, you know, I think, and I'll just say in the pre-interview for this conversation, you said that we are um, not at the uh, beginning of the end, but the end of the beginning of this uh, pandemic. And so I wonder what comes after herd immunity, um, if that is not the end of the pandemic? No, herd immunity is not the end. And if I might, before I address your question, let me just do a little Epi 101. Um, so herd immunity is the idea that a population can be immune from an epidemic, even if not every individual within the population is immune. For example, if you vaccinate 96% of the population for measles, and one of the 4% unvaccinated people gets the measles, you don't get an epidemic because they have, they're surrounded by immune people. There's no one for them to spread it to. And that percentage, that 96% is the herd immunity threshold. And you should have the intuition that the more transmissible the disease is, the more contagious it is, the higher that threshold is. And the contagiousness of a disease is quantified by a quantity called R0 or R sub zero or the basic reproduction number. That's how many new cases do you get for each original case in a non-immune, normally interacting host population. That's an intrinsic property of the virus. If you release the virus into a naive population, how many each case creates how many new cases? And that number for SARS-CoV-2 is three, about three. For seasonal seasonal influenza, it's about 1.5. You each case of the flu creates one new case, replaces itself plus half a case. So that's why you get a slower growing epidemic. Measles, 
the R not for measles, it's like the most infectious disease known. It's like 16 or 18. It just goes like gangbusters. Each case creates 16 or 18 new cases. The formula uh, under certain assumptions for calculating the herd immunity threshold is R not minus one divided by R not. So three minus one divided by three is 67%. In the original variant of this virus, 67% of the people have to have a be immune to the virus before we get the herd immunity threshold. Now, actually, it turns out for certain network science reasons, specifically that people vary in how many connections they have. Some people have many connections, some people have few, that actually that number comes down from 67 to about 50%. So about 50% of Americans have to be immune before we reach the herd immunity threshold. Now, when we reach that threshold, it doesn't mean that we've eradicated the virus. The virus is still there. It's still killing people. It's still circulating. It's just that its epidemic force is gone. It's no longer, it doesn't have the capacity to create epidemic outbreaks. So that's the concept of herd immunity. And a spanner in the works is that some of these new variants have higher R-naughts. They're more infectious. So for example, the B117 variant, its R-naught is not 3.0, but 4.0. So 4 minus 1 divided by 4 is 75%. It's a much higher herd immunity threshold. So these new variants are going to wreak havoc in our society in a number of ways. It makes, us, makes it necessary to immunize even more people. Okay, so with that background, where do we stand? As you said, we vaccinated, let's say, 20% of Americans have been vaccinated so far. That's great. But we now have to manufacture hundreds of millions of doses, distribute the doses of the vaccine, administer the doses, and most importantly, persuade people to be vaccinated. And all of that's going to take time at least until the end of 2021, before we you know, vaccinate at least 50% of the population. And meanwhile, the virus is still spreading. Maybe 20 to 25% of Americans have acquired immunity naturally. But either way, because of artificial immunization, artificial immunity because of vaccines or natural immunity because of the natural spread, we're gonna cross the herd immunity threshold by the end of 2021. Now, until that time, we're gonna be living in a changed world wearing masks, uh, intermittent school and border closures and business closures, uh, uh, gathering bans, uh, outbreaks uh, in places. We'll probably have a better summer, but we can come back to that. But we're going to be living in this kind of still experiencing the acute impact, the acute force of this epidemic washing over us. But finally, that will end. Although, as I said, the virus will still be there. And this great tsunami that struck us, the waters will recede as this wave of virus has finally abated in some sense. But then there's going to be debris, right? There's, we're going to have to clean up the mess. We're going to have to, now that the biological and epidemiological impact of the immediate pandemic period is over, we will enter an intermediate period in which we have to clean up the psychological and social and economic mess that have been created by the virus. And the clinical mess, maybe five times as many people as die will be disabled by this virus. So, if a million Americans die, we're talking 5 million Americans, not with long or short COVID. No, you recover from your COVID, but your body is harmed. You have some neurological deficits, some neuropsychiatric problems, renal insufficiency, cardiac insufficiency, pulmonary fibrosis. You've got some problems in your body for the rest of your life because you were infected. So those Americans will need attention. Millions of children will have missed school. Millions of people will have lost their jobs. Millions of businesses will have closed. All of this will take time for us to deal with let's say another couple of years, if you look at the centuries of history of pandemics, and this gets us to the 
2024. And then in 2024, I think we're going to have a bit of a party, approximately. These are approximate dates. I think then we're going to have the roaring 20s of the 21st century, similar to the roaring 20s of the 20th century. You know, I think I think people, having been cooped up for so long or constrained for so long, they're going to relentlessly seek out social interactions in nightclubs and restaurants and bars and sporting events and political rallies and musical concerts. We might see some sexual licentiousness, although my sister Katrina insists that I point out this only applies to unmarried couples, uh, not to married couples. Um, we're going to see people relentlessly spend money. Uh, you know, there's going to be a kind of a people right now, the savings rate in the United States is through the roof, which is typical of plagues uh, for a variety of reasons. But people are going to now spend their money. We're going to see an efflorescence in the arts and of entrepreneurship. So I, I think it'll be a bit like the roaring 20s of the 21st century, like the roaring 20s of the 20th century. And that'll mark the the post pandemic period. And, and I'll say one more thing and then I'll shut up. All of this is subject to the understanding that we don't have new emergent variants of concern that put a spanner in the works, right? That make things much worse for us. We'll be back with more after this message. Ready to take your travels to the next level? Alaska Airlines is committed to providing a higher standard of safety and cleanliness throughout your journey. From mask requirements and touch-free options to HEPA filters on board and everything in between. Plus, their award-winning loyalty program, Mileage Plan, makes it easy to earn and redeem miles wherever you go, including destinations worldwide, thanks to their One World Alliance membership. If you're ready to land a low fare, next-level care, and the best experience in the air, book now at alaskaair.com. So, uh, you know, I want to focus on pretty much the rest of the conversation on that period uh, after we get um, past the, the tsunami um, and talking about the debris. And, you know, I, you've done a lot of looking at the 1918 uh, flu epidemic, um, uh, also the 1890 uh, in, influenza epidemic, right? Um, and may pulled been, a lot. May have been a coronavirus. That that 1890 right. epidemic might have been a coronavirus epi- pandemic, actually. But yeah, I'm sorry. Go on, Mark. No, no, that's right. Um, and uh, and so you've pulled a lot of lessons from that. Um, and I'm I'm you know I, I want to hear what those lessons are, but I I also want to hear about what's different uh, about now. And um, you know, in particular, there's an aspect of our society right now that didn't exist in 1918 or 1890, and that is um, the internet. Uh, you know, and you've you've written quite a bit about um, the impact of uh, of um, online life on uh, human beings, and I'm wondering, you know, the intersection of those two things, um, what you see as being the uh, the impact of um, us uh, both having the ability to be online instead of in person, but also some of the mental health impacts of all of this screen time. I mean, you know, I've been staring at a screen for 10 hours today, and now I'm staring at it for an 11th hour while I'm talking to you. And I'm just kind of wondering, what is that doing to my brain? And should we be worried about this? So, um, so I would say a couple of things in response to that. First of all, I'll step back again and frame it as you're right, that 
our time in the crucible facing this ancient threat of plague is distinctive in a number of ways. First of all, this pathogen, serious though it is, is not that serious. It kills about 1%, 1.2% of the people that it infects. That's the intrinsic lethality of this pathogen as compared to things like smallpox or cholera or bubonic plague, which are 10 or 30 or 40 times deadlier, or Ebola. So the pathogen is deadly, but not that deadly. So our time in the crucible with this ancient threat is, however, distinctive in the ways that you describe, which is that there are certain technologies available to us which were not available to our ancestors. First of all, the mRNA vaccine and adenovirus vaccine technology. We are the first generation of humans alive who has been able in real time to invent a specific and effective countermeasure against the enemy, the virus, and implement it in a fashion that might change the course of the epidemic, okay? So the, during bubonic plague, they thought that if you took a snake and minced the snake and took onions and minced the onions and made a paste of snake and onions and smeared your body with this, it would ward off the plague. Of course, that didn't work. But we can invent stuff that actually does work, and it's miraculous. And so, so yes, our time facing this ancient threat is different because we can actually invent a specific countermeasure. And we do have modern medicine. So if you get seriously ill, even though you well might die, you're not sure to die. You know, we have ICU care and doctors who know how to care for these conditions. And as you pointed out, then we also have the internet and this type of technology which allows not all workers, of course, many business, many workers have to do their work face to face. If you're a trucker or a waitress or a home builder, you know, you, you don't you can't work at home. Uh, but many uh, jobs, uh, both blue collar and white collar jobs can be done from home and using this type of technology. And this has been, as you suggest, a tremendous boon. And as I think has softened the impact of the that, that would otherwise have occurred uh, due to the epidemic. We also have you know, we have a system of distribution of goods, for example, uh, with trucks that can deliver, do home deliveries, and in some places, drone delivery technology. So we have other technologies that have allowed our economy not to suffer quite as much as it would have, I think, if this type of an epidemic had stricken us, you know, as something analogous 100 years ago. Did I answer your question? I'm not sure I addressed your, your question. Yeah, no, I think that you answered it in part, and I, I, I kind of, you know, double-barreled that one on you, so I apologize. Yeah. But I, I, but I do want to draw on a question from um, one of our audience members uh, to maybe really emphasize the second part of that question. And um, you know, and there, there's a lot of concern around the impact of the pandemic on our mental health, right? Mm. Um, and so our reader, uh, Krista Daniel, asks, can you talk about the difficulty of connecting to ongoing mental health care following a crisis? So essentially, um, and you, you brought this up a little bit, but um, do we have the capacity as a society to really um, manage and deal with the, the mental health crisis that, we as a, that we're entering into? Well, again, one of the things that I think is important to understand is that this too is not a new experience. I mean, plagues, as I've discussed elsewhere, are a time of grief, right? I mean, they take, they take our lives, they take our livelihoods, they take our way of life, right? I mean, during a serious pandemic, it's a time of loss. Everyone is losing right now. People are losing things. Some, you know, for half a million Americans, they lost their lives. 
probably 10 times as many people knew those people intimately. 5 million Americans probably knew someone that died and are bereaved. Probably 100, probably, uh, so 500,000, 5 million, probably 50 million Americans knew of someone that died. Maybe that's made them afraid, for example. We know millions of Americans have lost their jobs. College kids are not having a normal college experience. High school kids can't have a normal dating experience. Elementary school kids aren't having normal playground experiences. People, it's a, plagues are intrinsically a time of loss. And so there's a kind of widespread grief that is typical of plagues that we are also experiencing. So when framed, so from, from the mental health point of view, in the broadest sense, our experience of sadness and almost grief, I would say, is is pretty typical. Now, in the long term, I, we will recover, like our ancestors recovered, both as individuals and as a society. But I think many people will bear the marks of this, will have been traumatized by, uh, by this. you know. And, and again, I think the idea that we would somehow emerge unscathed, um, you know, I think pretty much everyone alive in the United States will remember the epidemic of 2020 and 2021 and what they were doing and what it was like for them at that time. And I don't think I don't, there's any easy way to escape that. I mean, is there a way to, is there, is there a way to minimize the suffering though? I, I mean, I guess I, I'm just, I'm trying to think naturally grief is, um, is a big part of what we're going through. And as you said before, I don't think that we were really set up in a way that allowed us to come to grips with what we're in the middle of early on in the pandemic, or maybe even right now. Um, I think that there is certainly, you know, we are, a, you know, a, a country, a, a civilization that maybe is in uh, denial uh, over and over again about this pandemic until it's over. But I, I do wonder if there's, um, if there is a way to minimize uh, the yes. suffering or if we just need to like, you know, grit our teeth and just get through it. Uh, no, I think both are true. I don't mean to be nihilistic about it. I, I, I guess what I was trying to do first is just frame people's expectations. Like the idea that somehow we could just whistle as the plague afflicted us and not suffer is is not realistic. I mean, it's my. I guess my first point was just to say some of this suffering is unavoidable, and um, it's not realistic to imagine that we could do something that would completely mitigate and eliminate the suffering. I guess that's my first point. But that doesn't mean there's nothing we can do to mitigate it. And I think you know, engaging socially with others. I think the sense of, and this is why I was so disappointed in the prior administration. I think a call to action to the American people that said, look, this is what's going to happen. We know this is going to happen. These are what the experts are happening. Certainly by March, when Italy, certainly by February, when Italy, Northern Italy collapsed, we knew the United States was going to be afflicted. There was no way to escape this fate. Something that said to people, you know, this is what's going to happen. This is what epidemic growth means. You remember your high school math class that you ignored when your teacher told you about exponential growth, the long flat part of the curve, and then the steep part? We're on the flat part now. So it seems like nothing is happening, but something is happening and it's going to get bad. And uh, But don't be afraid. Here's how we're going to work together as a nation. So to give people a sense of purpose, to give them a sense of meaning, to, to, to frame the experience as a kind of shared sacrifice, I think actually would have had not only pragmatic benefits in terms of confronting the epidemic, but mental health benefits, right? I think people would have felt like, you know, I'm in this with together. 
with everyone else in my community and in my nation. And everyone is doing their part, including me. I'm doing my part. And that kind of sense of purpose, I think, would have been would have been a factor that could have mitigated some of the mental health consequences. Other things include, of course, staying connected to your family, trying to stay gainfully employed, making contributions to your community. Um, these are standard things that people can do to, to mitigate the mental health consequences. And of course, there are other ordinary things, you know, therapy and medication. But I'm just talking about like, you know, the social aspects of it. Yeah. Well, so... Um, Can I see something? Could I say something oh, more ahead. about yeah, yeah. meaning? You know, we've talked a little bit about how plagues, this is an ancient threat. We've talked about how plagues are a time of grief. We've talked about how they're a time of fear. They're a time of lies and mendacity. You know, we've highlighted some of these longstanding features of pandemics, which have manifested themselves even now in the 21st century in the United States. And we've talked a little bit about the stereotypic course of pandemics, the immediate period, the intermediate period, the post-pandemic period. But I'd like to just say another word about meaning, which I just came up in this context that you mentioned, because plagues are also a time of meaning. So typically during times, I, and why? Well, when death is afoot, right, when, when people are obliged to stay home, when their usual occupations have been suspended, when they are suddenly thinking about their own mortality, it fosters in people a kind of search for meaning. Often this is manifested as heightened religiosity. So during times of plague, you see more people pray, go to uh, places of worship, um, have a sense of religious you know, spirituality. That's very typical. And the Gallup surveys are showing that that's happening in the United States today. We also see this search for meaning in things like a boom in the applications to uh, medicine and nursing. So many young people are seeing, you know, I can find meaning in my life by, uh, by working as a healthcare worker. Essential workers are finding a sense of meaning or thinking about it. truckers. We have a million or two million Americans move our goods on our highways. They're crucial to our society. They have a sense of meaning and purpose in their lives. Teachers, you know, have a sense of meaning and purpose. They, they see the purpose and the meaning of their lives in a different light now during a time of plague. So, so all of that's happening. And I also think, incidentally, that this search for meaning has played a role in a lot of the protests we have seen in our country, both on the left and on the right, uh, during the time of plague. So during, after George Floyd was murdered, you know, by a policeman on video, there were all the protests and the eruption in anger. And there's no doubt that part of that related to the history of police brutality in our society, especially racially tinged police brutality in our society. So of course that played a role. And some people have also said, well, an additional thing that played a role was that um, was that people were stuck at home because of the plague. They were bored. They had nothing else to do. That's why they were protesting. Or that the economic anxiety, people were unemployed, and that played a role. And for sure that played a role, too. But I also think the search for meaning played a role because I think people were at home and they thought, what kind of society do I want to live in? What kind of person am I? What's important to me? I think people found justice. They expressed their concerns as this, the meaning found as its outlet, a concern for justice. And analogously, on the January 6th insurrection in the United States Capitol, I think that was a bit of a right-wing analog to that. Because one of the things that struck me about that event was that the protesters and the rioters weren't masked. They were making no efforts to conceal their identity. For them, what they were doing was about patriotism, right? For, for them, they, they, they thought, okay, you know, this is this is what's meaningful to me. So I think I think the plague that we are in the midst of 
in a typical fashion, has prompted a reflection in the citizenry about what's important to them in their lives as individuals and what's important to them about their society and has therefore played a role in these types of other macro social changes we are seeing, whether it's the uh, social justice issues on the left or the kind of you know uh, things we see on the right. All right, so I just want to remind the viewers that we're gonna be doing Q&A here in a few minutes, um, so get your questions in. Uh, and Nicholas, I, I just have one more kind of topic area that um, I think you set up really well there. Um, and it's really around what your outlook is for this post-pandemic era. And looking in the long term, it sounds like you view this as a, an inflection point. And I'm curious if you view it as um, a moment where we're potentially moving towards being um, a, being better, being a better nation, a better civilization, being better human beings. Um, is, is, the, is that what you are, are seeing in our future or is there something? Um, well, I think, I think one of the things that, um, that plagues do is they function as their stressors on a society and on a human, on, an, on a, a human's life living during a time of plague. And I think they act as accelerators. For example, they act as relationship accelerators. I think if you were heading towards a divorce, I think the pandemic has accelerated that. If you were heading towards getting married or being more loving to your partner, I think the pandemic has accelerated that. I think that, um, I think that a lot of the technologies that were afoot and uh, some of the political changes in our society have been accelerated by the pandemic. You know, Zoom technology existed before, but boy, has it been boosted. mRNA vaccine technology existed before, but boy, has it been boosted, and so on. And I think as well that the the the, the plague struck us at a at a particular moment in the history of our nation where we were especially vulnerable. We have long term highs in economic inequality. Uh, I think the worst in 100 years. We have, although this is contested, depends on how you measure it, but approximately it's very high, the economic inequality right now. We have political polarization. We as a nation have lost, in my judgment, a capacity for nuance in, in difficult social dilemmas. We think you're with me or you're against me. It's black or it's white. This is, in my opinion, foolish, childish thinking. Uh, I think we need a spirit of compromise, a spirit of listening to each other, uh, a spirit of trying to find common ground. Uh, I don't think it helps us as a nation to demonize each other. Uh, but And the plague takes advantage of this. Our enemies take advantage. Our geopolitical enemies take advantage of this too, by the way. But certainly the virus does. The fact that masks, for example, became politicized in our nation, but not in other nations, harmed us. The fact that, you know, wearing a mask, which is just a barrier to droplets, came to be seen as a political act, harmed us. There was no reason for that to happen. It did not happen in other nations. So... So all of that's happening in the background, but you asked me about goodness and my, my laboratory and my work, I have spent a lot of time understanding the deep evolutionary origins of things like love and friendship and cooperation and teaching. And I have been persuaded that we are an amazing species. We are a miraculous species actually, full of good qualities. And I'm not ignorant of all the awfulness that we're capable of, but there's all this good stuff we can do too. And I believe the good outweighs the bad. And in any case, I'm optimistic in my disposition. 
So even as you said during this time of plague, I think it is bringing out fantastic qualities in us. We are banding together, late better late than never, as a nation to fight the plague. Our capacity to teach each other things and to share knowledge is manifested, for example, in our ability to invent a vaccine, which is miraculous. And I would like then to read to you a passage which summarizes my way of thinking, which is from Albert Camus' The Plague. Camus writes this book, uh, it's a novel, describing events in uh, set in the 1940s in a North African village based on episodes of the bubonic plague that had stricken the prior centuries. A protagonist in the novel is Dr. Rieu, and this is Camus writing. He says, Dr. Rieu resolved to compile this chronicle so that some memorial of the injustice and outrage done them might endure, and to state quite simply what we learn in time of pestilence that there are more things to admire in men than to despise. And that's exactly how I feel. Um, and here is this idea expressed by this existential philosopher in the setting of a plague. That, <clears throat> Nicholas, you are a man of my own heart. I, I was uh, fighting the urge to bring up Camus throughout this conversation because I thought it would be a little bit too, uh, um, too, too high-minded. <laughs> I appreciate that. So let, let's get to some questions from our uh, from our audience. Uh, so Krista McIntyre says, um, Fauci said we are in for a century of pandemics. What's your opinion on that? Yes, I think um, so. A couple things. First of all, plagues come. Uh, respiratory pandemics come every 10 or 20 years. Everyone listening to this was alive in 2009 when we had the H1N1 pandemic, but nobody remembers it because it just gave you the sniffles. And most people probably remember the 2003 uh, coronavirus pandemic, but you know it didn't affect too many people for a variety of reasons. And we, so we get respiratory pandemics every 10 or 20 years uh, and, um, and serious ones every 50 or 100 years. And many scientists are concerned that the inter-pandemic interval, inter-pandemic interval for serious pandemics might be shortening. And it's very hard to be sure because let's say it went from every 50 to 100 years to every 20 to 50 years. It might be 30 years before we could really know if we had another one. Incidentally, pandemics are stochastic. That means they come at random. We could have another serious one in five years or 10 years. And let me just interrupt my answer to go on a slight tangent and then I'll come back. There's no God-given reason this pathogen isn't more deadly. Just imagine everything else the same about this pathogen but its intrinsic lethality is 10 or 30 times higher. Like in the movie Contagion, the lethality of the pathogen was about 30% of the people who got the disease died. Whereas with this one, about 1% who got the symptomatic COVID die. Just imagine if that had happened. Unlike things like bubonic plague or cholera, which are caused by bacteria, for which we have antibiotics to treat bacterial illnesses, we have very few, if any, drugs that are effective at treating viruses we would have been facing a bubonic plague type calamity in 21st century United States. You know, bodies piling up on the streets in an, in an un, unbelievable way. And this is why so many people from Bill Gates to Tony Fauci and everyone else have been warning about this for so long. It's a national security threat. And we could have another such plague of much deadlier nature sometime in the next few decades. And if it happens in five or 10 years, which it could, we'll be better prepared, we'll remember but if it happens in 30 to 50 years, we'll have forgotten 
and the new people will act just as we are probably. Now, Fauci's statement, going back now, there is some evidence that so-called zoonotic diseases, diseases that leap from wild animals to us, have been rising over the last 50 years. So decade on decade, we get more and more of these new pathogens that uh, leap viruses and, and uh, bacteria and parasitic infections. You know, people heard about Zika and and hantavirus and Legionella and, you know, various new pathogens that affect us. There's some evidence, Ebola outbreaks, that these are rising. And one of the theories about it connects it to climate change. That is, the population grows as the climate changes. We are encroaching on the terrain of these wild animals. And, of course, they are also encroaching on our terrain because we are constricting their jungle habitats and so on. And so we are in for, uh, based on everything I've said, we're in for more and more pandemics uh, over the coming century. I think that that's the consensus view right now. Hmm. All right. We've got another question here from M. Fate. Um, and you talked about the healthcare industry a little bit earlier about, about people entering it uh, maybe at this time, but, but M fate has a question. How do you think our healthcare community might change as a result of the pandemic? It could see many dealing directly with COVID quitting and maybe others deciding not to pursue this work. It seems a thankless job uh, the way so many have disrespected health protocols to try to avoid the virus. So this is kind of the counter to what you were presenting before. Yeah. What's the reality here? It's too early to be sure, but I don't think that's what's ultimately going to happen. Yes, many healthcare workers, first of all, many healthcare workers have died. Many of those deaths were un unnecessary. And it enrages me that as a nation, we did not take the measures we should have a year ago to prepare our healthcare workers. It's one thing to ask healthcare workers to take a risk. For example, when I was a young doctor, we took care of people with HIV and we were very worried about needle stick injuries. I was, I won't say frequently, but I was occasionally splattered with blood. I never had a needle stick injury, thank God. I was lucky and I was careful, but I was on more than one occasion splattered with body fluids from an HIV positive patient. And, um, but we were expected to take these risks. It's part of the profession if you're a healthcare worker. But not without equipment. I mean, we had equipment, you know. We had we weren't sent into battle naked. We had gloves and we had masks and we had everything we needed to minimize our risk. And yet when the pandemic, the coronavirus pandemic crushed upon us, we expected our healthcare workers to risk their lives unequipped, which is just an unacceptable expectation in my judgment. Now, having mentioned HIV, let me just say that the HIV pandemic has cumulatively been much more deadly than coronavirus and will still be more deadly. I could reach over here and get some precise statistics uh, just to very, just give me a second to uh, find those, uh, that uh, figure. And I'll just tell you the precise amount. So for example, in terms of uh, deaths over the course of the, um, over the whole pandemic, HIV is about as deadly as coronavirus will prove to be. But in terms of years of life lost, the HIV pandemic will be about three times worse than coronavirus because, of course, HIV preferentially killed young people. So, so, the, so, so we've had a previous pandemic in recent memory in the form of the HIV pandemic, and that did not reduce the interest in medicine or the commitment of healthcare workers to care for patients. So I don't think the coronavirus pandemic will have this untoward effect that the questioner is uh, asking about. Hmm. All right, we have room for just one more question. And 
I think we'll hand this one over to Marsha Arthur, who asks, are Americans recoiling in fear or reaching out more compassionately to less fortunate people as a result of the pandemic? Now, you talked about the goodness of people in, um, in a time like this, you know, but, but again, what's the reality here? I mean, I, I feel like we see both sides of this, but um, it's hard to know what the, you know, what the reality on the ground is here. I mean, I think it depends on what indicator you look at, whether it's charitable giving or altruistic acts or the emergence of all kinds of, uh, of collectives to provide for food and, and health care for other people. Uh, it, it, you have to pick your indicator. But I would say on balance, we have acted fairly well as a nation. Now, are there people who have been... Um, I would say unneighborly, you know, not wearing a mask is an unneighborly thing to do. You know, you're not brave for not wearing a mask, you know, fearlessly getting the epidemic and you're not showing your liberty by not wearing a mask. Uh, you're, you're being unneighborly, you know, you're exposing others to potential risk. You don't know if you have the infection, you could have it and be spreading it and not know it. And um, it is basic public health precautions to wear a mask. So yes, we've had, and if you refuse a vaccine, you are, unless you have a, a health contraindication, you are you are not bearing your burden, your fair part of the burden in confronting the epidemic. We all have to get vaccinated if we want to get back to society as normal. If you fail to get a vaccine when offered one, um, you're probably free riding on other people. And the risk is minuscule compared to the benefit. You're much more likely to die of coronavirus than you are to die of complications uh, or serious side effects from a, any vaccine, frankly, that is available now. So, so I think that, uh, you know, those are pretty strong statements I've expressed, but I do believe these statements from a public health point of view. So, yes, there are some people who are avoiding masking and vaccining and other people. And there's a big debate in our society about whether we should or shouldn't close schools. And there's a legitimate debate about that. I'm not, I'm not saying we shouldn't discuss these things or deliberate as a nation and come to some consensus. We should. Uh, but I think overall we are concerned as a nation about our neighbors and acting generally uh, well. And in any case, as I said, I'm optimistic. So I, I, that's my story. I'm going to stick to it. Oh, one more thing. A lot of this is easier because the pathogen is not as deadly. If it were killing one out of three out of us, I think we might have seen a bit more of a free-for-all. And back in March, that was the highest ever level of purchasing of weapons that our society has ever seen. Americans armed themselves as the plague was coming down upon us. And in fact, we've had quite a year of murders in the past year, excess, you know, spike in, in violence, in murderous violence, uh, which again is not uncommon in times of plague. It's of course much worse when the plagues are much more, are much more deadly. So, so it's a complicated picture. I don't want to sugarcoat it, but I am going to choose to focus on the positive side. There, well, are more a, things to admire. there are more things to admire in men than, and women than to despise. I want, I want to allow you to close on that. Um, but that is uh, a, a good place to end. Uh, Nicholas, I appreciate so much you bringing both the facts as well as the humanity to this. It has been a pleasure speaking with you. Uh, thank okay. you so much for coming on the show. Mark, thank you so much for having me. And thank you to all the listeners. And, and uh, good luck and Godspeed. And that's it for this week's episode. Thanks again to Nicholas for coming on the show and answering my questions. 
And thanks also to the folks in the audience who asked their own questions. If you'd like to be one of those audience members for a future CrossCut event, including the CrossCut Festival, which is coming in May, go to crosscut.com events. This episode of CrossCut Talks was engineered by Rusty Bacall and Victoria Ralph, and the event was produced by Jake Newman and Andrea O'Meara. Ann Krasnovich and Mo Klaub managed our audience engagement. If you'd like to subscribe to CrossCut Talks, you can do just that on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. For the latest political, environmental, and culture news from the Pacific Northwest, visit CrossCut.com. CrossCut Talks is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Mark Baumgarten. We'll be back soon with another conversation.